So um, I was wondering if y'all could take a few minutes to um, address the issues of tax avoidance in America and offshore tax havens available to corporations. What would be the, in- the economic impact of forgiving all U.S. student loan debt? Hi, my name is Jackie. I am a working business economist in Chicago. Hi, this is Casey Rogers. I'm calling from the unfortunate state of Louisiana. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, where we explore everything you wished you'd learn in Econ 101. So uh, here, here we are again uh, in another episode of Pitchfork Economics, and I'm joined by my friend Trey Crowder. Uh, Hi, uh, Nick. The, hey, Trey. Uh, the <laughs> comedian who, um, how do we meet? We met in L.A.? Yeah, yeah. You, uh, you, as far as I could tell, um, parachuted out of a private jet into my backyard I did. in Burbank. I did, yeah, that's that, that's how I roll. Uh, I carry a parachute Yeah, no, we times. did some video <laughs> stuff together at my house in Burbank. That's right. And, uh, yeah, I think I asked you that you were there already, and shortly after you got there, I, and we heard a helicopter in the distance, and I was like, uh-huh, is that Nick's helicopter or whatever? And you are like, no, mine's still in Washington <laughs> or whatever, something like that. Helicopter. <laughs> Actually, where's my helicopter? I don't yeah. know. It's somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who can keep yeah, up? exactly. No, I don't have a helicopter. Sad. <laughs> I, I wish I had a helicopter. Um, but anyway, yeah, we've been doing. Um, uh, we've been partners doing uh, stuff having to do with uh, economics and narrative mm-hmm. for a while, and it's super fun to have Trey here at World Headquarters of Civic Ventures in Seattle, Wa, uh, to talk about uh, economics and to stumble our way through complicated yeah. and baffling uh, listener questions, which is what we did last time and which w- w- what we will attempt to do again now. Oh, I'll stumble. Don't worry. Okay. No attempts. You can have a stumbling competition. <laughs> Hi, Nick. Thanks for the great show. My name's Paul Lamb. I live in Toronto, Canada, and I would be interested to know what would be the, in- the economic impact of forgiving all U.S. student loan debt. You see a lot of naysayers um, claim it would be apocalyptic. I would be curious to know what your thoughts were on the matter. Thank you, and thanks for the great show. Bye-bye. Paul, that's an awesome question, and thank you for call, for uh, calling uh, from my second favorite country, Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trey, do you have any student debt? Uh, I mean, I did, but, did you? you know, thanks to... You know, you coming to my house and doing those videos. <laughs> no, just thanks to various things. I paid mine off uh, a little over a year ago, but yeah, I, I definitely had student loan debt, and every, pretty much everybody I know is college educated does. And some of it's how much pretty you, outrageous. How much did you? How much did you uh, tally? Like at the peak, how much did you owe? Uh, I, I, I don't, and I'm, and I mean this sincerely, even though I might sound ridiculous. I only owed about twenty thousand dollars. Oh, that's not bad. No, well, because I like. I grew up so, super poor and made really good grades. So I had like scholarships and also uh, wow. federal grant, Pell grants, oh, like wow. low income, and still had, still worked all the time I was in college and still had uh, some student loan debt by the time I got out. But yeah, like my sister in law's a pharmacist and she has like, you know, six figures plus of really of student loan yeah. debt. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Paul, to your question, 
um, if memory serves, uh, the accumulated student debt uh, in the United States now is at about $1.3 trillion, and it affects, I think, 40 million individuals. And eliminating all that uh, debt would be, in my opinion, a fantastic idea, uh, something that we could very, very easily do. Um, and here's how I know we could do it, uh, because we just passed a giant tax cut for rich people that will cost about $1.5 trillion. Uh, right. And we could afford to do that. Right. <laughs> so clearly, you know, the reason that we don't wipe out student debt is that we have persuaded ourselves, again, coming back to the theme of pitchfork economics and attacking neoliberalism, that tax cuts for rich people creates growth. Mm -hmm. Investments in the middle class will bankrupt our great country. Right. <laughs> right? right. So take the same trillion dollars. If we under this sort of regime of thought, if you give the trillion dollars in tax cuts to rich people and big corporations, that's good for the economy. If you get, take the same trillion dollars and wipe out the debt for tens of millions of ordinary Americans, middle class Americans, that will bankrupt the country. It, this is crazy and absurd. Um, and obviously, it will benefit the economy much more to, to get all these folks, 40 million people, out from under this insane amount of debt. I mean, forget how it will impact their lives mm -hmm. and make it better. Think about what it would do for the economy to free all these people up to right. actually start buying stuff, right? right? Yeah. Not a one of those people can participate fully in the economy today because they're saddled with all this debt. And I also want to say for all the people who are listening who are like, well, you know, I paid for college, blah, blah, blah. You know, here's the thing. I played for college. Mm -hmm. I did. You know how much it cost me to go to the University of Washington a year? $650 right. a yeah, year. Right. Because in my day... In the olden times, we had an economic system where college was treated as a public good and yeah. taxpayers paid down the cost of tuition. And what happened over 40 years in neoliberalism is that we shifted that burden from um, taxpayers onto students. And so anyway, I think it'd be a terrific idea. And so, Paul, what, you know, uh, we are going to go deep on this subject in an upcoming episode of Pitchfork Economics devoted entirely to the idea of debt-free college. So stay tuned for that. Hi, my name is Jackie. I am a working business economist in Chicago and uh, love you and the work that you're doing on Pitchfork Economics. Uh, I love you very irrationally. Um, and I am, I would love to hear you talk about the relationship between wages and inflation on your show, if you haven't already done so. Um, and also perhaps throw in monetary, uh, the money supply as policy. Uh, that would be great. Um, there is some renewed focus right now around using money supply more aggressively in policy, um, than in the past and, uh, rather than using just inflation targeting. So, uh, it would be great to hear about that and keep up the good work. Thank you. I want to say off top, uh, Jackie, that I don't think there's anything irrational about loving Nick. <laughs> just so you know, it's not weird at all or anything. I was just telling just myself like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. Every morning in the mirror. People should love you. Yeah, right. What is um, it? What did, what did Stuart Smalley say? I'm good enough. Yeah. I'm smart enough. Gosh darn it. it. People, people like irrationally me. love me. <laughs> 
Uh, but wages thank you so and inflation. Much. So it seems pretty out of whack to me. Like one thing that I used to, I'll, like I would be so pissed about all the time when I got out of college and got this, you know, desk job working for the government that ostensibly paid well and everything was that I did not have like, uh, you know, a four bedroom house with a two car garage and a boat and all this shit. Like I was always told is how America works. If you don't <laughs> live in a trailer, like I grew up in, you know, like I was like, where's all, when does my boat show up? <laughs> And you know what I mean? Like, I, I thought that was the idea. You used to be able to get a job at a factory yeah. and have a wife and family and own your own home and all this, and that just doesn't happen anymore. And that's the reason why, right, is that wages have not kept up with the cost of everything else. That's right. And and we, and 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 in particular, um, the, Trey, the stuff that um, you, you mentioned, which is a house mm-hmm. um, or education or health care, the, the inflation of those things has wildly out, outstripped wages. But Jackie's question um, around um, wages and inflation is a really interesting one and definitely one that confuses people because it's easy to think that if wages go up, like if we doubled the minimum wage, wouldn't that just double the cost of everything and right. wouldn't we either be in the same spot or worse off? Yeah, I seem I feel like that's like, a general you know belief that people seem to have yes is that like yeah well if you just pay people more well then everything will just cost more so it'll be totally negated yeah anyway. and there are two ways in which that's not true the first is that profits as a percent of GDP are almost double today what they were um, consistently in the middle part of the last century they've gone from about five percent of GDP to about ten percent of GDP um, and that means, uh, and, and the truth is that, uh, companies Isn't that because of them taking more, more of the income as profit, as opposed to things wages. like wages that yes, they pay the exactly. people, like it's so just, wages went down, profits went up. Right. So wages can go up a whole bunch. In fact, wages could, could go up a trillion dollars a year in our economy and profits could go down a trillion dollars a year and profits would simply be more normalized to where yeah. they used to be. That's right. point one. And the second point is that well, profit, uh, that wages usually make up a small part of the cost of things. Mm-hmm. So as I recall, the total cost of labor for Walmart is about 10% of sales. So of course you can raise wages a bunch, but that will only increase profits a tiny bit. And Walmart indeed could afford to not charge anything more, even if they did that. Uh, this is John from Arizona. And this is my question. A progressive income tax code comes in varying degrees. How do we know when it's progressive enough to meet the needs of society? John from Arizona, that's an excellent question. And I don't think that there's probably a definitive answer uh, to that. I appreciate you looking at me just now as though like, <laughs> yeah. I might have any yeah. insight on yeah. whether or not there's definitive. I, yeah. No, there's not a definitive answer uh, as far but as I'm more. concerned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it ain't it right now, yeah. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, and, and th- so one of the big problems with the tax code right now is that for most rich people, most income is not ordinary income. It's not the income that you make uh, getting paid from your right. job. It's income that comes from investments. Yeah. And that income 
isn't taxed progressively. It's taxed at the capital gain rates of around 25%. So for most rich, really rich people, most income is taxed at a lower rate than middle class people are taxed at 33% or something like that. Right. So that's pretty crazy. And um, here's, here's what we know from history is that uh, there was a point in the in in the American past when the effect when when the marginal tax rates were seventy or even ninety yeah. percent. Some like some good years too. Some right? good years. Well, for white people, <laughs> but, we ain't got to get into all that. Yeah, but <laughs> that's a different podcast. Th- that is a different podcast. But but for sure, during those years in the fifties and sixties, the American economy grew faster than it ever has since. And right. the rates of political polarization were also lower than they've ever been. Those are also uh, the same times when those people worked at a factory and had the houses and cars and stuff. Exactly. That I was about and so what we know from history is that you can have an economy where rich people pay way, 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 way higher uh, tax rates than they do currently. And you can have an economy that the vast majority of people prefer. But so this time with women and minorities included. Exactly. But, but yeah, that would be we awesome. We could do it. We could do it. <laughs> Hi, this is Frank from Georgia. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, one, I was wondering what your opinion on investment apps is like Ash and Acorns and Robinhood. And I was also wondering what your opinion on uh, a sales tax or federal sales tax like the fair tax or a VAT tax would be. Uh, that's it. Thank you. I mean, I don't have any idea about this answer either, uh, Frank, but, you know. You don't have an answer for this? I have no idea about those investments. How about this? Frank did it. You're just not an app guy? I'm not an app guy. Like in general? I have a team. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm more of an a app. team guy yeah, yeah. than an app yeah. guy. Yeah, I, I honestly can't speak to the the investment apps. Um, I, I suppose some of them are okay and some of them aren't, but do not take my advice on this uh, matter. Uh, but on your other question, oh, did you say a sales tax or yeah, a fair tax? Yeah, value tax, which is a value added right, tax. Yeah. 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 So on your other question, uh, which has to do with a value added tax or a national sales tax, I actually think that is a terrific idea in some way, shape or form to replace other taxes. Because here's the here's the here's the thing is that um, there's a whole ton of taxes that we have that people have gotten really, really good at sneaking out from under. Certainly corporate corporate income tax is one of those egregious examples where. uh, Amazon There's loopholes and ways oh to get God. around doing yeah, it. But if terrible. you're taxing a thing that a person's buying, yeah. if you buy that thing, you're going to have to pay that tax. Super you hard. You don't get like a tax logger involved exactly. when you buy a new car or whatever. Yeah, and exactly. And I generally subscribe to the idea that you want to have taxes that um, are as broad as possible and low. And right. I think that uh, almost every other successfully industrialized country has some sort of a VAT, a value-added tax, because in general, they're a really good idea to spread the tax burden around and not let people sneak out from under it. Hi, uh, my name is Sydney. I am calling from Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, big fan of the podcast, by the way. Um, my question is, I wanted to ask about um, taxes. Specifically, um, an issue that I think is being overlooked or that I think should be brought up more going into 2020 before we discuss any new taxation on how to pay for social programs that um, a lot of the mainstream uh, in America is uh, 
you know, advocating for right now as far as uh, progressive policies. We need to talk about tax avoidance and tax um, offshore tax havens that are available to corporations. So um, I was wondering if y'all could take a few minutes to um, address the issues of tax avoidance in America and um, offshore tax havens available to corporations. Thanks so much. So first of all, Sydney, uh, how's your mom and them? Knoxville, my old stomping grounds, go Vols. Uh, I don't know if this is exactly what she was getting at, but I, it, I think um, this is the type of thing that I see all the time, and I'm sure she does too, living in Knoxville, but it was just a huge thing around where I'm from where like people focus on uh, you know, welfare, food stamps, welfare queens, people like uh, abusing those systems, and that's where all the wasted money goes or where all the money is wasted at, the way they talk about it, but they don't say anything about uh, corporate welfare, these offshore accounts and all this type of thing. You were touching on a minute ago where people get around, the super rich get around paying their fair share in the first place or like, you know, a, a huge percent of Walmart's employees are on are on food stamps. So that Walmart is essentially on food stamps. Yes. The government, they're being subsidized and they're like the biggest, one of the biggest corporations on planet Earth. And people on you know on the right where i'm from at least they never ever talk about that stuff they focused instead entirely on we need to be drug testing these lazy yeah. ass welfare right. you know what like that type of thing when it's like a drop in the bucket compared to yeah what the corporations are doing in and the what first truly place. rich people are doing right. with their yeah. money and i think you know tax evasion it's of course it's hard to get your fingers exact put your finger exactly on how big it is but the Estimates I've seen are that uh, something like one in six dollars of taxes collected is actually evaded. You know, so in the in the range of fifteen to twenty percent uh, uh, of taxes get you know kind of eva- evaded. Did it, I'm not sure if I said that right exactly, but you get the point. And and I, I, if I had to guess, it would be in the range of eighty to ninety percent of that would be stuff that. Rich people did because poor right. people can't evade taxes. Like right. most of the taxes you pay as a poor person are your payroll taxes. Right. Right. What are you going to do? Right. right. There's not. You can't. It gets taken out before you, you ever even yeah, see yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and or the or the or the property tax charged in your rent. Right. Right. Or the sales tax charged in your gasoline. So um, the vast majority of t- real tax evasion t- comes at the top. And, um, you know, we should put those people in jail. Uh, and there should be really, really severe penalties for uh, this kind of stuff. And we should fund the hell out of the IRS to make folks who do that uh, live lives of, you know, in, in living hell. I, I just I just there's there's no uh, there's no other alternative to uh, to stop this than that. Hi, Nick. Uh, this is Paul. I'm calling from Texas. I love what you guys are doing. And uh, I have a question, and um, I don't know if I can explain it as well as you could, but let me just try. Um, I would like for you to do something on subsidies. Uh, It seems like the major emphasis on taxation is taxing the rich. They're talking about it, taxing everyone. Could we not look at subsidies and uh, try to derive money from that way? Because it doesn't seem like anybody wants to talk about subsidies. 
So if you could educate us on it uh, in your way, I would appreciate it. Nick, thank you for all you do for everybody. Thank you very much, and have a good one. Bye. This is another one of those, Paul, where I'm right there with you and uh, wanting to hear Nick's explanation of this. So yeah, go no, ahead, tell me no, and Paul about no, it. No, I mean, I think, I think Paul, you struggled to ask that question, but I think – that's because it's a complicated question, but you are absolutely on the right track, which is that there's all sorts of things that go on in our economy that are less obvious than how much tax, uh, what the tax rate is on rich people or whatever it is. There's uh, there's uh, hundreds of billions of dollars that we spend essentially in in. Um, in benefits and tax breaks, and the vast majority of those benefit the wealthiest people. So a great example of this is the is the hundred something billion, hundred twenty billion dollars or something like that that we spend every year on the mortgage interest deduction. Now I know people love them their deduction, but but the only people who get the benefit of that hundred twenty billion dollars are obviously people who buy houses and in particular people who buy expensive houses and if right. you do the math what you find is that two-thirds of the benefit of that hundred twenty billion dollars so about eighty billion dollars is flowing entirely to people in the top twenty percent of the income distribution and basically none of that benefit is flowing to the people in the bottom 60% of the income distribution because only about a third of Americans even even right. itemize and right that, you're saying that, and that's like indicative of how a lot of those types of uh, programs or measures often work they they disproportionately impact rich people to exactly. begin with exactly. because of the nature of what being poor is and and yeah. because the and because these subsidies are designed to make being rich easier right and yeah and um you know you could take that 120 billion dollars and you could divide it by the number of people in households in America and send everybody a check every year, right? right? Yeah. So uh, that person making $20,000 a year living in an apartment would get an equal share of that $120 billion a year as the jillionaire living in the giant penthouse. Right. This would be a far fairer way to split up that $120 billion subsidy and I think would benefit the country uh, you know, a lot. Hey, Nick, my name is Jonathan Weiss, and I'm calling from Richmond, Virginia. And my question is this. Franklin Roosevelt said taxes shall be levied according to ability to pay. That is the only American principle. Let's think about that for a moment. According to Pew Research, 83.5% of Americans make less than 100 k And that's households. Those households pay just under 20% of the taxes. They pay 19.5% of taxes. But Americans are drowning in debt. So why do we have any of these households paying any income taxes at all? And if you're curious about finding the research on that, look for Pew Research, a closer look at who does and doesn't pay U.S. income taxes. Thanks. Take care. <laughs> well, that's he like you know why, why do we have any of these people paying any income taxes at all? It's like, well, hell, I mean, somebody's got to pay taxes in this damn country. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like because the rich are not they're going to pay as little as they possibly can. But no, I mean, what is the answer? Yeah. So, uh, so one of the really so you point, Jonathan, you put out a really interesting thing 
which is that um, uh, w- w- we we have to find a fair tax system that burdens people in proportion to how they can pay. Right. And you know, one of the one of the things folks on the right will always say about t- the tax system today is, well, the rich pay all the taxes. And if you actually look at where ta- where tax revenue comes from, mm. it is true right. that rich people are paying almost all of it. But they but have this, all the money. Exactly. They, yeah. Exactly. Right. And, so, and the like, reason Yeah. Exactly. And the reason <laughs> that so many people in the bottom deciles have so much debt, and the reason they have uh, um, so much trouble um, paying their bills, and the reason they don't really have the capacity to pay taxes, is because their wages have been uh, 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 suppressed for 40 years. So that the rich people could have more money. Exactly. And so the problem isn't the way in which we have um, organize the tax code, in my opinion. Right. The problem is the way in which we have organized how we pay people. If you fix the pay thing, the tax problem goes away. Mm-hmm. If you double the median income from fifty nine thousand to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, which, by the way, is where basically it would be if if the typical family had fully benefited in productivity over the last uh, forty years then those folks wouldn't have any debt and right. they would be able to pay tax. Right. And that's the heart of the problem, not the tax system. Hi, this is Casey Rogers. I'm calling from the unfortunate state of Louisiana. And my question is this. Um, do you believe American companies are suppressing wages by labeling workers in entry-level positions as unskilled workers regardless of what education or work experience they bring into the position. All right. So, Casey, I want to say off top uh, that you're really selling Louisiana short there. The, Louisiana is the best food in this entire country, some of the best uh, music and funnest people also. So, you know, Louisiana's got some stuff to offer. But having said that, uh, Nick, <laughs> you were talking about yeah. the actual question. Yeah, I, but, I actually, but, I mean, I've I think had the good... answer to her question is uh, – yeah, probably yes. they're suppressing it. I, w- without even knowing like the details, I'm going to say probably <laughs> yes. because that'd be a shitty thing to do. Yeah, so they do it. That's I'm, what so they I'm would sure do. they're doing it. Exactly. It's the <laughs> relentless logic of neoliberalism. Right. What's the worst thing we could do? Right. Let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, um, so absolutely, uh, they are doing that, and and. Um, and one of the most pernicious ideas of trickle-down economics is, and neoliberalism and neoclassical economics is that if you're paid a crappy wage, it's because you deserve a crappy wage right. and you're unskilled, right. right? And that is just straight-up oppression, right? Yeah. That's just exploitation. The truth is, if you're paid a crappy wage by one of these giant companies is mostly doing it, it's because those people are assholes and are exploiting you. And we have supported that exploitation with our policies. Right. Uh, there is no earthly reason why folks um, shouldn't earn enough to get by without food stamps and Medicare and the, and the rest of it. Uh, and indeed, those companies could afford to pay people well and decently. And, and so definitely one of the most pernicious things that's happening in the economy is this narrative about how 
poor people are poor because they deserve it because right. they're unskilled. If they don't like being poor, why don't they get some skills exactly. and get a better job and, and then they won't be and poor that anymore? that is straight up bullshit. Right. The truth is that the people at the bottom of the pay scale in our society today are not less skilled than the factory workers who worked in Detroit no, and earned. I don't know earned, how to do almost any of this yeah, shit that they do. Yeah, right. I mean, but, I guess I'm pretty unskilled to be fair, yeah. but like, but you know what I'm trying to no, say. Exactly. Like, you know, those yeah. are skills. You yeah. still, every job entails some kind of it does. skill. It does. And the, and the p- person that works at Walmart today is not less skilled than the person who worked for GM right. in Detroit in the 60s and earned a dignified middle-class wage. The only difference was that the worker at GM had a union exactly. and power exactly. and could negotiate a fair split of what the company made. Yep. And the worker at Walmart has no power. And that's that's the bottom line. So yeah, that whole all that skills talk is just that's just exploitation and um and and, and you know, just being really unfair. This is Keith from Vancouver, Canada. Nick, the decline in union density equals a decline in employee power. When employers have too much power, workers don't do very well. Are you in favor of reforming labor laws to increase union density to European levels, or do you see good alternatives to unions that will restore the balance of power and lead to living wages and decent benefits? Okay, before you answer this real quick, I just want to say you're you're kind of starting to freak me out because, like, (laughs) It's like you anticipate what, you know, some of the next questions are going to be or whatever. Because, like, you were just touching on unions at the end of the last question. Then we go straight into this guy yeah, wanting it all, to know about unions. It all fits together What's, in this magical way, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we, we have been rolling these ideas around in our heads for a really long time. And, um, and uh, Keith from Vancouver Uh, Thanks for asking the question about union density. So for sure, there is a direct correlation between declining union union density and the shittiness of the lives of ordinary people. Before unions were a thing, people were like literally like a a worker would fall into a meat grinder and they're like, well, I guess he goes in the next shipment of spam or whatever. You know what (laughs) I mean? Exactly. They didn't give a shit about the people that worked for them until unions became a thing and forced them to start in the first place. That's right. Like, yeah, you have to. Without unions, man, without power. Yeah. And and, an economy isn't this physical entity it's a it's a it's a set of relationships based on power and unions are the only thing that we've ever come up with really to give workers power except when we use laws that people pass to substitute for power like raising the minimum wage which is just sort of like the national union you could sort of think of it like that Mm -hmm. um but um so I am wildly in in favor of laws that increase worker power, but um, Keith, the American version of unions is an imperfect one because it organizes on the basis uh, not of industry or region, but of firm. And so we ended up in this really crappy spot where you, if you have a situation where one firm in an industry gets unionized, it is existentially threatened if the other firms don't get unionized, right? Right, Because if I pay 20 bucks an hour and you pay 10, then that's super bad. Now, if we're both paying $20 an hour uh, in the same industry, well, that may be inconvenient and we may, you know, like 
complain and, and, and whine. They, and they tell all their employees that type of stuff. Like, you know, they'll t- tell them directly. It's like, look, right. you you try to unionize, you're just going to lose your jobs, That's all right. of you. Because, That's right. So how, what would you rather do? Have a job and not be in a union or yeah. try to unionize and just lose your job altogether? It, and, like, of course, most people are going to be like, oh, yeah. well, I guess we better not. Then. Exactly. Exactly. And so there are forms of unionization and worker organization um, that are way better, uh, like sectoral bargaining, um, regional bargaining. These are way, way better ideas because they lead to more stable outcomes. And frankly, they lead to situations in where labor and business uh, uh, owners can collaborate more rather than fight more. And I think that ultimately that's that's where we got we have to get to. We have to have policies that um, head in that direction. Uh, thanks again for everybody, and uh, thank you, Trey. And thank you. We'll see you on see you on down the road. <laughs> that was good. I feel kind of weird now because that's like that's a thing that I say to people a lot. <laughs> I didn't realize it was that uh, you know. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media. That's L-A-R-J Media and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks, And peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. And one more, you should definitely follow Nick on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests. And thanks to you for listening from our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jessen Farrell, Jasmine Weaver, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Stephen Paolini, and Annie Fabley. See you next week.